1: A woman born in the South in the 40s did not have a lot of ways to express themselves, especially not creatively. And so for a woman like that to have a child with a Turkish Muslim immigrant where I was still always the brown sheep, she achieved what seemed impossible her whole life. And that's why even though I'm standing (laughs) next to John Lewis, I said, Mama, we made it because we did. There's not a lot of moments in your life where all the wrongs and all the pain seem worth it. But if you stand up on a stage with John Lewis telling you you're his son and that your mother helped you change the world, it gives you a little bit of hope for what you can do with a life well spent. My name is Andrew Iden, and I am a modern minority.
2: but we're no one's model minority.
0: This is a show about all of you, for all of us.
2: On today's show, we're speaking with Andrew Iden, creator and co-author of the graphic memoir series March, which chronicles the life of congressman and civil rights icon, John Lewis. Andrew actually worked with Representative Lewis and co-authored the book with him illustrated by Nate Powell. And it's an award-winning book that talks about the Jim Crow era, the civil rights movement, and all of the activism and the heroes from that time. But since then, Andrew has gotten out of politics and helped found Good Trouble Productions, which produces innovative nonfiction graphic novels and multimedia projects like March and Run, a sequel to the March trilogy. He actually writes for DC and Marvel Comics now, too. So it was just a lot of fun to talk to an activist and a nerd, Sharon.
0: An activist and a nerd. That's a great way to describe Andrew. He brought this energy that I think many of our guests have, but his was like amplified by 50 times. Like he came in and just really had such great stories to tell as well as, you know, he, I don't want to spoil it. So definitely listen for this, but he talks about winning um, awards for March and literally recalls the moment that they talk about his mom's influence on all of this. And I think that's what I really loved about Andrew is he's been to a lot of places and at the heart of it, he still really, really loved his mom, you know, and anybody like that, I think has just such a great energy, great heart, great values. And it was a joy to get to know him.
2: We hope you enjoy our conversation with our new friend, Andrew. Andrew, welcome to the pod. It's great to have you here, man. Oh,
1: thank you so much for having me.
2: So Andrew... Some folks have heard of you. Some folks have definitely heard of some of your work. But I guess what we're all trying to figure out, man, is where are you from?
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, I was born and raised in Atlanta. Uh, Congressman was my congressman since I was three years old. So right in his district, right in the heart of Atlanta. (laughs) But you've got a funny sounding name. Well, Come on. You're not really from Atlanta, are you? (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because on one side of my family, at least by marriage, I'm related to the very first white person born in Atlanta. On the other side of my family, on my father's side, uh, my father is off the boat from a place called Sinop, Turkey, which most people would have never heard of it. It's right in the middle of, of Turkey on the northern coast, but most Americans would encounter it because that's where we keep our missiles. <laughs>
2: Wait, wait! You said we, we being Americans, or we being your secret Turkish? Yeah, okay. the United
1: States. Oh, I, I yeah. If I had my secret missiles, the that would be a different thing. But <laughs> no, the, the their Air Force, the Army, so one of the branches keeps a group of ICBMs, as last I recall. It was a point of political contention for a long time for America to keep those missiles there. When you think about the proximity to the then Soviet Union, and yeah, and, man, uh, yeah. So that was that was where my father was from.
2: Well, on, on the flip side, just to nerd out a little bit, like because those missiles are there and those air bases are there, that's why we let the current Turkish government get away with some of the things they're doing. <laughs> yeah,
1: I don't know. Like they let them get away with too much sometimes.
2: Yeah. 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 Well, I so oh, did you always have this connection with your Turkish heritage or was that just something you found out later in life?
1: It was, I guess, I always had a name that no one could pronounce. How's that? But I didn't really know, I didn't even know what my actual last name was until i was 10 my my father left when i was very young he left when i was about 3 and i never effectively i never saw him again after that i rarely heard from him and my mother was very intent on me looking like a "quote unquote normal atlanta white boy" because she thought it would be easier for me i can remember her saying that to me over and over again and when i remember i changed schools between the third and the fourth grade and I always thought my name was my mother's name my mother's maiden name was Van Buren and that's what she went through and that was my Mm -hmm. middle name but I didn't know that and I remember going to school uh, for the first day of fourth grade and the teacher calling out and she butchered it it was like Andrew Eisenberg right and and they were they were she's sitting there like waiting for someone to raise their hand and I'm like I wonder who this other Andrew is and I'm like (laughs) looking around and then dawning on me that that was me. And she's looking at me because it was a very small school and there's only so many new kids. And she's like, is that you? And I was like, I I don't think so. And she's like, well, then what's your name? And I said, well, my name's Andrew Van Buren. And she's like, oh, no, that's your middle name. And that was the first time I ever knew what my whole name actually was. Because my mother was so intent on she just didn't want it to be harder for me. This was the South in the 80s and the early 90s. And People didn't – I was definitely the only kid in my school who had uh, a Muslim father. Mm -hmm. Actually, why I take that back? We did have one Iranian woman who Mm – or or girl at the time who was in my class. But that was it, right? Like there was no exposure. I I, I didn't really understand what it was. It's
2: funny funny you mentioned that girl though really quick. As one of the sole not regular minorities, so to speak, in the South, there's something I can identify with. Did you at least like seek out that girl or you just knew who she was? Or the contrast, yeah, we can't associate with each other because we're both trying to assimilate and fit in.
1: It was a lot more of the latter. I remember we we used to have this thing called cotillion, right? It's a very southern thing. Pre debutante cotillion, which was like they started in the freshman year. And I was supposed to go, I was like, it was like, okay, you go to these things with the other. At that point, we had a, it was also a Lebanese girl who was in my class. And it was like, okay, all of you guys stay together. You're the allowed to date each other. You're allowed to, you're pushed together. Don't mix with the normal white girls. Right. And maybe that was a little bit of their parents being afraid that they'd come home with some brown child or I, I don't know, but there's it, a special, there's a special, it's the racism is a,
2: a special yeah. time. Yeah.
1: Well, and I was talking about this the other day with somebody because there's this long connection between the Turkish community and the African American community. Mm-hmm. Wait, and sorry,
2: there is. And why?
1: I that was the question. That was what we were trying to, <laughs> to figure out. And then, like, I had this lightning bolt moment. And then I was like, "Well, they do call us both the N word. They just put sand mm. in front of it for yeah, my yeah. my people." Uh-huh. And it was, it was, it was, it was like, all of us having this like startling moment of, "Oh yeah!" Like, as far as the racists are concerned, we get the same host of insults. <laughs> But something I've learned on this podcast,
2: and it makes sense, the idea of passing, right? So you might have like half white, half black people that are white passing, so they go with it, right? Because it's going to be easier on them. And it sounds like that's what a lot of your mom was trying to do. Because I've been called the sand N-word a couple of times growing up because I'm a deep shade of brown, right? Right. So did you ever lean into avoiding it? Because you remind me a little bit just based on your background, (laughs) like the physical background I saw when we, we first started this chat. And- I had a close friend in college, who's still a close friend, who we thought he was just like standard white guy. And then we later found out, after we all left the South, that he's actually half Jordanian-Palestinian. And now he's got the beard, he leans into it, he goes back to occupied territories. And But in the years where you're trying to fit in, he just chose to... Yeah, that's that's a thing of convenience.
1: Yeah, the thing that personified it most heavily to me is that As soon as I was able to grow facial hair, my mother was buying me razors and just like constantly <laughs> on me about shaving. Yeah, because yeah. as soon as I start growing out a beard, I look. You're an Arab. You're you're yeah. you're a Middle Eastern guy. Yeah. yeah, and so that was that was where my mom like, oh, <laughs> she was very into like criticizing or critiquing how I was dressing or what I was looking like. And her way of saying it when I looked a little bit too not white would say, Oh, you look like a thug. Wow. And she wasn't wrong in what she was trying to do. (laughs) You you could have pulled your pants up. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. And we later in life, like just before my mother passed away, actually we had a big, I wouldn't call it a fight. It was, she was just mad at me. Because when the Trump administration came down with that Muslim ban, I really felt strongly about it. Because if his ban had taken effect when my mother was looking for a husband, I wouldn't exist. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so it felt more personal to me. Like I had to speak up. And I remember early on saying something about it. And from fellow Hill staffers, good Democrats saying or hearing back like, oh, but you're a good one. Like you don't need to get it at all. And so I grew my beard out and that was a big kerfuffle because my mother just hated it and i remember showing her the acceptance speech for the national book award and i've got this big burly beard on and my mother says like oh that was so great think cuz i talked all about her how it was like, mm-hmm, oh, like cuz it was us against the world and she was like oh it's so great and and the beard doesn't look bad i was like <laughs> that was like her way of being like okay it's not The end of the world, but But it's funny about the beard thing because right now I just grow it out
2: out of laziness, and there's a pandemic, and I don't have to go into the city. But for a while, when I would go backpacking, not on business trips, but like going to the Middle East, going to Africa, going to South America, I'd grow the beard out to. I hate to say it, look a little bit more intimidating because you're going into some questionable areas. But you better believe I'd always have like a polo shirt and a razor or the night before my flight back to the States and coming into the Atlanta airport. Oh, right. And yeah. It, it was a thing I did. I I'd come back into, I would leave the country with the beard growing. I'd come back into the country, clean shaven. Um, and I'm sure knows I can be a pretty angry, <laughs> bitter person sometimes, but sometimes. I'm the nicest guy I'm... in the world in the airport, man. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you got to, it'll tase you. Uh,
2: <laughs> yeah, the, the Southern <laughs> charm comes out.
1: Right. No, I remember I, I was living in the Netherlands in 2004 and Teo Van Gogh was murdered in Amsterdam by a Muslim immigrant. And I had a very Turkish last name. It was obvious. So whenever I could, I would then use Van Buren because it was so Dutch. And if I had to show an idea, like hold my finger over the Aiden part. And just because I felt like that was something I needed to worry about. And I talked to my mother about it. And we had this long conversation about... That fear was the fear that she held with her mm-hmm. every day, not because of who I was, but because of how everyone else would react to me. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Sharon, I want to flip that back on you a little bit because you're the mother of two black passing boys like, and they're mm-hmm. growing up now. Do you think about stuff like that?
0: I do. I do. And I, I'm very cautious of how I present that to them. Because I, I don't want to instill fear in them. Like they're still young enough, Andrew, they're seven and nine. So they're they're young enough that they haven't been exposed to situations where be, even though they are black passing, like anyone's treated them any overtly, any, any differently, at least not overtly. And, but I worry, of course I worry. Like I worry that when they get to a certain height, they're going to get stopped just because or when they when start they, driving. Or when they start driving, exactly. And they can't just shape
2: their beard like Andrew and me.
0: No. Right. And so it's it's yeah, as a mother, like I totally like you're telling your story and I totally get where she was coming from with her intentions anyway.
1: Right. That's why I never I was never mad at her about it. It was just and she was going through her own thing because my father had left. And so once I started to look like a a man, yeah, she was also confronting the fact that she was seeing every day, a a portion of this person who had left her, or who she actually wanted to leave because of the whole nother thing. But
0: (laughs) yeah, see, that's that. And that's interesting, right? Because just same as your mom, like, I personally have never been racially profiled. And my husband, he's here, and he's in our lives, like, I take a lot of his cues of how to then model that for my kids. Like, same as Raman, like, my husband will wear a suit in an airport. And many times he's. Uh, let's so- be clear.
2: I don't wear suits and
0: I can't <laughs> fill out a suit like your husband can. So,
2: it's usually like a Weezer or a Fantastic Four t shirt, which is equally as disarming.
0: <laughs> okay, fair, fair. But, but he'll dress in a certain way where he is completely disarming. And they'll still pull him aside and like want him. Anyway, like nothing will go off, but it'll just be like one of those random checks, sir. We're going to have to pull you aside. And I'm like, here we go. Uh-huh. And it's just, it's fascinating. when. And so even for that, like when my little boys travel now, they'll put on like their best little outfits because that's what daddy does. And I'm like, oh my goodness, like I'm on the fence with like, am I supposed to like look at that and think, oh, that's adorable. They want to be like their dad or is it at the core still, It it's scary. It's scary to think that we're they have to be this way because of the way the world is.
1: But it can be both, right? Yeah. I I just want to pull on that thread a little bit further because there's a direct link to the civil rights movement and to the way Dr. King and John Lewis and others represented themselves. And it was much that same attitude. That's why you always, always saw John Lewis in a suit and tie. Yeah. Even at 20, 21, 22 years old, because it was the idea of looking respectable, making it uh, harder and more difficult. Don't give them an excuse. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly.
2: You see that in, we'll get into the territory a little bit, but in March, which you helped the late congressman write, you see these moments of the boycotts at the diner, right? Where the instructions are, don't speak up, don't get angry. And this is, he was instructing the SNCC students, right? Like, and... And everyone's dressed to the nines. And part of you, you're like, oh, well, that's just everyone dressed nicer back then. We dressed like slobs today. It was like, no, it was a very intentional choice mm-hmm. to not give them an excuse. And there was pushback on Snick to like, we should be more angry. We should be acting out. So I, I gotta, I, I want to pivot a little bit back to you, because the reason we wanted to have you on the show was because of your work on March, a book I've read, and I just read Run. And when did the comic book thing happen for you? Because I, I know the story of like how you convinced john to do this which i i'd love you to recount but like when did the comic bug hit you and did it intersect with some of the things we've already been talking about
1: yeah i started reading comics because my grandmother didn't know what to do with me
0: what does that mean uh, <laughs> it,
1: my mother would send me to my grandmother's house which is up here where i am in western north carolina right now and she would send me for the summer and to get away because you're a single mom. You need some alone time. And I was a troublemaker. I was precocious. I got into everything. I asked all the questions. I always had a different idea. Why do you do that? And so, so she didn't really know what to do with me. And I wasn't much of an outdoor kid, which is really all there is to do out here. If you don't like to farm, and I didn't at that time, there's not a lot for you to do. And so my grandmother gave me my uncle's comics to start reading. And these were like 1960s, like early 60s, like the first X-Men comic I ever read was X-Men number one, which just like, oh, just gives me heartburn to think about like handing an X-Men number one to a nine-year-old to read. But... That's where I got started, and I really found that I love them and started reading on my own. Also, Western North Carolina has a huge comic book community, like bizarrely large compared to the average city, town, region, whatever. There's one road in Asheville that has three comic book shops within four miles of each other. So for nerds, it's a heaven up here. But my grandmother, I remember I started reading them, and then my grandmother took me to Piggly Wiggly to go to the grocery store. And there was a spinner rack.
2: And yeah. She said,
1: he said, do you want one? And I said, yes. And so I got Uncanny X-Men 317. I guess this would have been July of 1993, I want to say. So just before I turned 10, maybe okay. it was 94 was when that came out. And that's that's part of it was that I wanted to read stories about people who were doing the right thing because it was the right thing to do. I was from very early age, internalized a lot of anger about my father leaving. I, I felt responsible for it. Maybe I wasn't good enough. Maybe he didn't love me that much. And and this carried on like my whole life. My father, my father, just <laughs> what a scumbag my father was. When he wrote his will, he did not claim, not even like leave me anything. He didn't mention me as his child because I wasn't Muslim. Huh. And so, so I was I was carrying a lot of that. In fact, the only time my father wrote me after he left was right after September 11th. And even at 18, I was like, "Oh, my dad's worried about getting deported because he was an engineer." Mm-hmm. And if you're a Muslim engineer in the United States, right after September 11th, you were worried. Yeah. And yeah. The only time I ever heard from him until I showed up on television and in the papers. And what, then all I, of a sudden,
2: September 11th. Though, so I'm just genuinely curious. Why did he reach out on September 11th? Was it out of worry? Was it out of warning? What was the impetus for it in that, or just because the shared trauma
1: in our country causes us to reach out to people we love? So he didn't mention, this would have been like a month after September 11th, he sent Uh his letter. uh He didn't, he didn't really mention why he just said, I've been thinking a lot about you. And I'm like, "Eh." and he said, this is the part that disgusted me so much. He sent me a hundred dollars. Like not being there for the last 15 years yeah yeah was somehow going to be absolved with a hundred dollars and my mother i'll never forget was was she said she goes, you know what i'm not opposed to being a hoe from time to time but i'm not a cheap hoe <laughs> I <was> like, <laughs> I like i love you mama
2: it's funny that you mentioned something i've I've coined this phrase and I believe in it. I was raised Hindu, but an atheist more or less, but spiritual in the sense that I will go to a temple. I will go to a mosque. I will go to, I go to a mass with my wife every year, but I I call this thing superhero morality because the superheroes were doing the right thing because it was the right thing to do. Right. Not because there was some religious conviction or even example, although I could say the X-Men were following Charles Xavier, who was a proxy for Martin Luther King versus other proxy that magneto was i think about that a lot and about i remember when i was reading march probably the first time when i discovered it at the library that why were these guys doing it there was a religious angle to it just like gandhi had a religious angle and something that got him into trouble with muslims was he was bringing hinduism into his morality that's literally why muslims disagreed with gandhi on many of his political policies but in a judeo-christian country to root a lot of the civil rights movement in churches because that's where community was. I, I don't know. As I was reading March, I was like, oh, this is superhero morality. They're still fighting for what's right. And they're fighting because the X-Men, man, they lose more often than they win. And I don't know. Is Was that some of the appeal? The appeal, particularly
1: with the X-Men to me, was this idea that we were born extraordinary and that people didn't recognize it yet. Mm-hmm. My mother instilled, she was always, she put so much pressure on... Like the threat was, like, do you want to grow up and and flip burgers at McDonald's or something like that? Mm -hmm. And you're better than that. Yeah. Yeah. Which working at McDonald's is respectable. I don't, but for her, it was, it was that she had put so much into me that I needed, that that, that she really instilled in me the belief that I would do something extraordinary. Yeah. Um, Although I think in some ways, March and everything else that came with it, particularly at the age it happened, really took her by surprise. Mm -hmm. Why? But, Oh, well, I remember just before my mother passed, I asked her, because, all right, so my my mom, after I got a second medal, like, you get a medal for the National Book Award, and then I got the Cybert Medal, and so mm-hmm. I had some medals, which is a weird thing to have a collection of. And my mom said, she goes, can I have one of your medals? <laughs> you have more than one. And I was like, <laughs> of course, of course. So I gave her the National Book Award medal, the finalist medal that you get. And I came back to see her. I'd given it to her at Christmas, and I came back to see her for her birthday. And, Mom, I was wearing it in the yard while she was weeding.
0: Look at that. And, she was so proud of you.
1: Yeah. And I and I asked some of the people in town later, I was like, did, did you ever see mama wearing a, a medal? And they're like, My God, she wore medals. She <laughs> wore your medal to the grocery store. Like, <laughs> awesome. she looked like Flavor Flav. You know, Cause these are big medals. And so, so I asked her before she passed. I said, I said, Mama, we were growing up, did you ever think I would ever really win? awards like this or a prize like this or do anything at this level at this age and my mother said sweetheart I I love you with all my heart but no I did not and I and I thought about that in the context where mama was just hoping I would live a middle class upper middle class Mm -hmm. life that I wouldn't Mm -hmm. be struggling for money like she was And and then I thought about it a little bit more and I realized that before my mother passed, I had managed to surpass her wildest dreams for her, for yeah. me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I talk about that a lot when I visit kids because having lost my mother, that memory gives me more comfort than just about anything. Mm-hmm. Because it means when she passed, she had achieved her goals that she had put on me
0: mm-hmm.
1: because she was a woman born in the South in the 40s. And mm-hmm. a woman born in the South in the 40s did not have a lot of ways to express themselves, especially not creatively. They would barely give my mom a bank account when because she didn't have a husband. Mm-hmm. Right. And so for a woman like that to have a child with a Turkish Muslim immigrant, mm-hmm. where everybody in the family, and they loved me dearly, but I was still always the brown sheep, for lack mm-hmm. of a better word. She achieved what seemed impossible to her her whole life. And- that's why, if you ever do see the National Book Award speech, even though I'm standing next to John Lewis, my speech is all about my mother. And I said, Mama, we made it. Mm-hmm. Because we did. And, uh, you know, even the congressman recognized that. He, My old high school invited me back to speak, and the congressman went with me. And we give this speech. and I had gotten a scholarship to a prep school, and so I went. And I never quite fit in, but I, I made some really, really great friends. And Mama really never felt like she fit in. And... So I give my little lecture about like, hey, all you kids who think you're cool now, you're not going to be cool forever. Like, watch out for the nerds. They're going to take over and probably be your boss. Like really just a a smart alecky, but honest speech about where life was going to take them based on my own experiences. And then the congressman, like as I'm sitting there giving like all this, like, ha ha, I won speech, (laughs) the congressman gets up and he says, none of us would be here today without a very special woman. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And he calls out my mother. And he says, none of us would be here without you. Could you please stand up and be recognized? And it was like something out of school ties, right? Where (laughs) this whole prep school stands up and cheers and applauds her. And she was sitting next to the admissions director, who was as surprised as anybody at how my life turned out, but (laughs) who was incredibly supportive and, They're crying, and everybody's crying, and uh, and the congressman says, thank you for giving this young man to this world. He's become like a son to me, and I'm just glad we're all family. Oh. And, uh, you know, there's not a lot of moments in your life that you can have where all the wrongs and all the pain seem worth it. But if you stand up on a stage in Atlanta at one of those schools— with John Lewis telling you you're his son mm-hmm. and that your mother helped you change the world, it makes it, gives you a little bit of hope for what you can do with a life well spent.
0: Yeah. So Andrew, how did this start? Like when you pitched the idea to John Lewis, how did he respond? Like how did that come to be?
2: Or, or so her, where do you even get the idea, like the audacity of pitching the
0: idea? That's true. <laughs> Actually, let's start there. Like how would, how how would you even think to pitch him a comic book?
1: <laughs> We're too afraid <laughs> to be like, get back to work. We have other yeah. like real shit to do. One of the, Things that people who've known me my whole life will always say about me is that I am not afraid to speak my mind and, and offer up different ideas. I think at that time, part of it, if I'm truly honest, part of it too was that I felt such a deep connection to John Lewis, even though I'd only been working for him for about a year and a half by that point. He had really taken me under his wing and we just liked each other. The way I put it is we were the same weird. And that's awesome.
2: <laughs> I get that. I get that. Like, seriously, like, that's so cool.
1: Yeah, like we would, we would, we we, we love to go to auctions, right? And he would take some other staffers from time to time, and they would get bored. And meanwhile, I'd be like, "No, Congressman, we can't leave. I want to see this item." He would just because <laughs> he he always liked to buy art, and then he would see like comic book art, and he'd be like, "Oh, Andrew, look!" And he'd get excited. Then I'd see a chicken, I'd be like, "Congressman, look at the chicken!" And and we would like amp each other up. We just really had that. We just really enjoyed spending time together, and. To be able to have that connection in the midst of the politics of it and everybody else jostling for position. I was never trying to, I was actually pretty terrible at trying to move up. I probably could have left long ago or I probably could have made more money. I probably could have had a fancier title. But I just, I really loved spending time with him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it it was, it, it. and I always wondered why did he like spending time with me? And the way he would he would talk about it was that we just had fun. And there's not a lot of opportunities in this world, especially in politics, where you can do good, good work and have fun with the people you're doing it with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so that's where this all started. I was serving – I had started in his office answering his mail, which Mm is at the bottom. (laughs) Education well spent. Got it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right? (laughs) But what it was is it gave me an opportunity to learn how to write in his voice. Hmm. and. He really felt like I was getting the hang of it and that I knew Atlanta really well. And he was facing his first reelection challenge in, I don't know, 10, 15 years. And it, it largely came about because he endorsed Senator Clinton. Mm-hmm. And Obama world really came down on him. Threats, pressure, insults. Wow. wow. Irony, notwithstanding. I know, right? And I I saw him more depressed than I'd ever seen him before. And then honestly, more depressed than I'd ever seen him since. And part of what happened was not just because of the endorsement and the pressure, but over a series of years, if not decades, he was trying to be a Washington politician, but it wasn't necessarily who he was. Hmm. And at the same time, his wife was getting sick and... She had been the iron fist behind everything that was keeping everything running. And so then that was starting to fall apart. And he said to me, I'm worth more dead than alive. Wow. And I thought about that because I know there's staff that were trying to angle for like, oh, I want to run the foundation. Oh, I want to be charged with this. They wanted to control his legacy. mm -hmm. And it was already happening back then. And it just made him feel... Between that and the the threats and everything else that had come from Obamaland, it really just put him in a difficult emotional spot because the truth was people didn't know who he was. Mm-hmm. They didn't know what he did during the movement. They didn't understand how he was bringing his moral authority to Congress. And it really came to a head on that campaign. And so we had a series of meetings where we would all talk about how do we address this? How do we change this? How do we Tell people his story. How do we reach young people? Because that was the hardest part is it seemed like there was this generation gap growing where young people did not understand his story at all. Mm And the Southern Poverty Law Center around that time had come out with a report that called it the nine word problem. Most students knew only nine words about the civil rights movement. Rosa Mm -hmm. Parks, Martin Luther King, I Have a Dream, and that's it. Mm -hmm. And so it was in that context because everybody, I mean, all the stuff shirts in the office had the same idea. Let's do a documentary. One idea. Mm -hmm. That's it. Over and over and over again, there's been six John Lewis documentaries at this point. And nobody's Um, watching them. I mean, no no offense,
2: but it's like, it's another book. It's another documentary. That's great. But well, and even
1: the ones they make rarely show what makes him special. Yeah. Yeah, they they just tick the boxes, Mm -hmm. and then you can you can honestly the funniest part is that you can tell which staff member was orchestrating it by (laughs) by like which one you see the most holding the door for the congressman. That's funny. (laughs) Like, (laughs) like, oh, that's his. Okay, yeah, yeah. Look at you holding that door really well. Good job, buddy. (laughs) Yeah, tax dollars at work. Expert door holder. Sorry. And I, I, I don't know. I was so had my own vantage point. None of that seemed interesting. And it came from a place of like actually loving him as a human being. And it wasn't a career at that point. It was that I had this relationship with this mentor and this friend and also always searching for father figures because I didn't have one. And so I was in a meeting and it was towards the end of the campaign and folks were starting to talk about what they were going to do after the campaign was over. And some folks said they were going to go to the beach. Some folks said they were going to go see their parents. And I said I was going to Dragon Con. (laughs) (laughs) Yes! Because I'd been going to Dragon Con since I was 12. Bless my mom's heart. Like, she would let me go down there by myself when I was, like, the first time she let me go by myself was I was 12 years old. And she sent me down there with one of those big brick cell phones and was like, call every hour. Andrew, this, this whole podcast
2: has been a trick for me to ask you this question. A costume or no costume?
1: Oh, I've done both. (laughs)
2: Okay.
1: Yeah. okay. <laughs> um, at a certain point though, I'm a character in March. So I got yeah. kind of lazy once March came out. You're and just I
0: was like, as yourself.
1: I am cosplay. John Lewis does it at Comic-Con. I can do it at dragon I am a comic book character. And um, so everybody started laughing at me when I said I was going to Dragon-Con. And the congressman always, always, always was sticking up for me. And so he said, don't laugh. There was a comic book during the movement and it was deeply influential. And that was the first time I'd heard of Martin Luther King and the Montgomery story. Yeah. Wow. And it was this beautiful 16 page comic. And I went home that night and I looked it up on the internet and I was like staying on a friend's couch and you're tired. You had your beer and you're sitting there looking at it and you spent $100 thinking, on eBay. <laughs> oh, you couldn't even buy it on eBay at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, had to, I had to download it from a guy who'd put up a bootleg version on his website. Uh, a guy <laughs> named Ethan Persoff, who I always want to give credit for because he provided that moment for me. And I remember sit, sitting there thinking that night and looking at it and reading it and being like, this is awesome. Why is there not a John Lewis comic book? Mm-hmm. And then the more I researched on it, the more I realized and, and talked to the congressman about it, like that it had actually helped inspire – some of the earliest acts of civil disobedience of the movement. And wow. so we had another one of those muckety-mucks meetings with the stuffed shirts, and they asked the question, and everybody's going over, like, who could we get to direct this documentary or whatever? <laughs> and I said, like, well, Congressman, you should write a comic book. And it was just, like, pitch silence, like a few half chuckles, but this time no one's going to, like, openly laugh at me because they don't want to get reprimanded by the boss again. Yeah. And, and the congressman, he looked at me, and he, he just says, Oh, well, maybe and like it just moves on. (laughs) And I remember I asked him about it later. and He he said, son, I thought you'd lost your mind.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So at that moment, you feel the judgment. Maybe you don't feel shame for the judgment, but people are laughing at you and your mentor is laughing at you a little bit. Why'd you stick with it? But like that, this is really important for me at that exact moment. Why did you keep sticking with it?
1: I think it was twofold. One, in my heart, I knew it would work. Yeah. And two, I felt like it was the only thing I could do that the older generation in the office wouldn't be able to stop.
0: Hmm.
1: Wow. And I honestly, I held a lot of anger towards them because I felt like they'd put him in this corner hmm. with the status quo advice. They were turning him into a corporatist. And I hated that. That wasn't what John Lewis was about. And so I felt like if I did this, because it would have to be outside of the office, they couldn't stop me. Mm-hmm. So long as John Lewis was on board, then, and not to say they didn't try, but they couldn't succeed at stopping me. Mm-hmm. And thats that was, the internet campaign was a real dark time because it was the first time I really came to understand that politics is not a meritocracy. It is more of a race to the bottom And that oftentimes the people who reach the highest, at least at the staff level, and sometimes I'm sure at the elected level, are the people who are willing to do the dirtiest things. And that most of the game isn't about how you help people. It's about how you hold on to power. And that at 23, 24 was, it hurt because I had so much hope and optimism. I went into politics because I wanted to help people like my mother. And I felt like even in John Lewis's office, it should, especially in John Lewis's office, it shouldn't be like that. But there are two faces to a lot of people, and the face that they would show to the congressman was far different than the face they showed everybody else. So I walked away from that campaign, being like, if 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 anyone's going to be able to help John Lewis, it's me, and this is how I do it. And it was also part of this is important to understand is that the thing that I could do in the congressional office was use social media to tell his story. In a different way. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the mugshot tweet comes from. The first member to ever tweet his mugshot, which everybody mm-hmm. thought was like a terrible idea. And then it goes viral. And then everybody's like, I thought that was a great idea. I'm sure you did. And and also, you know, you had to give him a catchphrase, right? You had to rebuild him into this whole object that people could understand because people they know stories, they know characters, but it's impossible to know more than a hundred people for real. Right. Yeah. Like you just don't have the bandwidth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you need this. So, so that's where Good Trouble came from. And I started using that as his hashtag that I think as early as 2012, we started using hashtag Good Trouble whenever he was doing something, when he would get arrested or something like that. And then it took off from there. And that's where Good Trouble comes from. That's why my email is Andrew at com because I registered that domain before it was a thing. And you know, that, that was it. You had to re Imagine who he was. And part of what I've been struggling with lately is the realization that there are countless other John Lewis's out there who haven't had that transformation yet. People whose contributions to American society are as substantial, but they haven't had the opportunity to have their story told and as the congressman would say, to have their story made real and made plain. So that everyone recognizes their contribution. And I think about all the folks who I've encountered now, I'll meet somebody and I will see that glimmer Mm -hmm. in their eyes and, and think this is someone I can help. Yeah. This is someone who deserves that same experience and that same lift.
2: It's funny. I have another podcast. that's just a reporter buddy. And I, we, it's like a comic book book club and it's not all superheroes. It's not all manga. And we just read Durf back Durf's um, Kent state. Oh, Derf. derf. <laughs> oh, Derf's a nice guy. He's a drinking buddy. Yeah, he I'm like fanboying right now. But uh, no, it's, <laughs> we read Kent State. And it was one of the best books of last year got a lot of the recognition that March got. Mm-hmm. Probably not as much, actually. But that's why I picked up the book, because I probably knew 10 words about Kent State. And we read it. And it's like injecting it into your vein to watch a movie or to read a graphic novel. And I would argue reading a graphic novel is a lower lift than making a film. Right. And and it's a powerful medium. So you talk about all those people's or all those stories that have not been told, have not been heard. And I've been saying this for years. It's just such a powerful medium to to get across a story in a much easier way than watching another documentary about Kent State or the civil rights movement or Mm -hmm. even a novel, fictional or non-fictional. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. so I, I, so I want to go a little bit back to that story. So everyone's like laughing at you and then you persist. What was that moment when the congressman said yes? Like, because there's a pretty funny story there about how you got roped into it.
1: I wouldn't say I got roped into it. I would say I was (laughs) told that if it was going to happen, it would be my responsibility. (laughs) Mission accomplished. (laughs) Love that. It was, it was funny because it was like, it was like the last week of the campaign and it's hot, man. It's July in Georgia and we're out hammering in yard signs over by the congressman's house and he's got he he would do this thing where he wore his suit shirt with a tie underneath his campaign t-shirt and he wouldn't sweat i i would be just wearing the t-shirt and pouring sweat right but he would have this whole thing and it, it, it was something that dr king used to do if you actually go back and look If you notice, like during the Birmingham campaign, he would wear a suit and tie underneath that blue denim shirt that was supposed to be the symbol of him marching with the workers. Right. And so he kept doing that even on his campaigns. And so we're out there. He's got the suit and tie with a shirt on and everything. And we're hammering in yard signs and we're going And my my job largely when we did this is and this is where the stereotypical white role I was supposed to go get the dogs out of the way in case they're so that when they Is that a
2: thing? That's that a thing? That's a thing. Yeah.
1: That's a thing. yeah. <laughs>
2: wow. So wow. he would
1: go up to the door and I would go be like hey puppy and and so we're coming back we got the yard signs and and all of a sudden there's this like flash of lightning and then you hear the thunder roll and then I look up and John Lewis had taken off at a full sprint like full sprint. He was 68 years old full sprint in a suit and tie down the road back to the car and we don't know what to do, so we start jogging after him. And then all of a sudden, we realize what he already knew, which is that it's about to pour. And so the rain's starting to get us, and we all end up diving into the car together. And we're sitting in that car, and there's got to be five, six, maybe even seven of us in this car. And you hear the patter, 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 patter on the roof. And we're all fogging up the windows because we're breathing heavy, having run all the way back to the car. And we're we, there's, then all of a sudden, it calms down a little bit, and we realize we're going to be stuck here for a minute. Because There's too many of us in the car to drive. And one of the interns says, Ask him again. And that's and the Congressman's, ask me what? So Congressman, <laughs> you should write a comic book. And I, I really believe that he went and talked to his wife about it. Because his wife was a librarian and she was so clever. She understood so much. I think that's why they got along so well because they were both people who were ahead of their time. And I said, well, Congressman, you should write a comic book. It would help teach another generation or something like that. And he said, he looked back at me and he had that little smirk when he makes up his mind and he's about to get up to mischief. And he said, okay, let's do it. Or I said, okay, I'll do it, but only if you write it with me. And that was when he said yes. And in fairness, it took us... Five plus years. Yeah. These things look <laughs> Just, easy. They're not easy yeah. to make. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the other thing was everybody in publishing said no. Yeah. Oh I mean, yeah. I went to so many publishers and yeah, you got guys rejected. went with
2: what? You went with top shelf, right?
1: Yeah, because they're the only ones who would say yes. Yeah. Wow. They had all of four it's, people. It's an indie comic book publisher, basically. Yeah. Yeah, huh. but they don't really exist anymore. They're like a subsidiary of yeah. IDW yeah. and they yeah. got bought out yeah, and yeah, yeah. IDW is owned by that Trump supporting billionaire. Yeah. And it's a sad story.
2: I said, well, that that brings me to an interesting point. Look, first of all, if you, people have not read it, go read it. Required reading from Rumens Comic Book Library. But despite all the accolades and recognition that March and even Run has gotten and is getting, what's been the pushback and criticism? Because that's a fear I have with this podcast. I'm not afraid, but I'm like, I recognize it. Right? Like, you try to go do good in the world, and there are trolls and haters who are going to push back. Fortunately, we're not that big. So it's not happening to that degree, but I would imagine like you're painting a target. What has that been like?
1: Well, the biggest challenge that March in particular has faced is that it is not corporately owned. Mm -hmm. And so there's not an incentive for any of the major players, either in a corporate sense or even a political sense to get behind it because they won't make any money off of it. And then the other challenge is is that there is a younger generation that is the children of many of these people from the movement who are trying to reinvent their parents' legacy and make it into something that is more than it was. And so there's that. Another challenge of March is that it's so dangerous to the status quo because it actually teaches young people about their power. Mm Mm-hmm. I know we we identified several instances of comics that looked as or appeared to have been we can't say definitively but appeared to have been funded by the Mercer family mm. who were meant to compete with March when it came out. So 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 there's that. Look, March got into schools and in some ways that's what set up the this fight over critical race theory and now you see the ones that they're fighting over are the ones that have large mm-hmm. institutional backing so mm-hmm. whether it's like affiliated with the new york times or a major publisher or something like that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they want that fight to drive sales it's not mm-hmm. actually getting into curriculums it's not reaching the young people it's not even framed as something to reach young people it's like it's esoteric high academia things and that's the other part of it is that there's all these people who've written all of these books about the civil rights movement and yet march will be the book that most young people read first And when you've got that many scholars and that many people with vested interests in this period who've made their whole life's work about it and like kudos to them for doing it, but everybody wants to be in first position Mm -hmm. and it becomes a crab in a bucket situation. I think in some ways, that's why I've stepped back from a lot of this. I don't don't have that same drive to hurt or to step on or to self-promote. way a lot of these folks do i just want to tell the story of what happened and move on i want to get back out to drive my tractor (laughs) and i thought i really believed that once we had demonstrated definitively that we had the perfect vehicle to solve the nine word problem and to teach the civil rights movement that would be it that everybody would fall in line but instead what it became was everybody fighting over how they can make money off of it And that to me was the total anathema of what the project was about. And if it had been about making money, it would not have done as well as it did. It wouldn't have been as authentic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And any development of this project of March or or Run or anything that goes into any other medium, if you don't see me working on it front and center and supporting it and everything like that, it falls into that other category. Mm -hmm, And. I don't want to be a part of anything that turns the civil rights movement into a cookie cutter commodity that you can fit into your latest IP venture. This was about, and you can go back and look, John Lewis and I guessed that it had an issue of creative loafing that came out the week before March book one dropped. Mm hmm. And in it, you see a, a slimmed down version of my graduate thesis as the feature article, which talks about how Martin Luther King and the Montgomery story was used to inspire some of the earliest acts of disobedience. It was what I called an incident of manufactured lightning, where you mm-hmm. manufacture mm-hmm. a lightning bolt moment. But we said we were trying to create a new nonviolent revolution in America. And because that's the nonviolent philosophy. That's, that's what you have to do. You write down your goal. And I, John Lewis got to see that succeed in 2020. That those young people who were marching after the murder of George Floyd and others, these were the kids who grew up with March in their classroom. Mm-hmm. These are the kids who went to the speeches, the more than 200 events that we did over eight years. They went and saw him. They read his words. They touched him. They shook his hand. They posed for photographs. They felt his presence. And it inspired them to be ready when that moment came for them to speak up and speak out. And I know he told me after that, That it was, in many ways, the fulfillment of what we set out to do 12 years prior. And I think that notion that you can use your creativity, that you can use the example of a great person to inspire change, true grassroots, Mm non-corporatized change, that's terrifyingly scary to a lot of people. And if I get so many requests now, like, tell us how you did it. Explain to us. We've got our project. And I can't mm-hmm. because this whole place came from the fact that John Lewis and I deeply loved each other. Mm-hmm. And we became with Nate, this traveling band of brothers. Congressman would say, I haven't felt this way since Julian and I were traveling the South for the voter education project because we were on the move again. Yeah. And it was working.
0: Andrew, I'm sitting here with goosebumps, like Ah, just listening, listening to all of this. You're just so amazing. And at times it seems like you are in a television show. (laughs) And then at other times it's like, no, this was really your real life. And I wish we could talk to you forever and ever, but Now it's time for speed round. Are you ready for speed round?
2: (laughs) I'm ready. Wrong answer. No one's ever (laughs) ready for speed round.
0: (laughs) What is one thing about you that nobody
1: expects? Oh, my action figure collection. Oh, them's fighting words, my
2: friend. I'm about to like open up a box. <laughs>
0: how, like, yeah,
1: what are I you mean, talking? Be, like, how many? My whole basement. I got the five foot Java sail barge over there, the Katana. All right, you win. What? I've got, I've got three different versions of the Sentinel just above my desk. My wife made me give away my Sentinel.
2: I'm pretty upset about that still. Oh,
1: you, only, you only had one Sentinel. I, exactly. Oh, okay. I've already declared loss. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I was so into it when I was a kid. I worked at FAO Schwartz as my high school okay. after school job and the congressman would get embarrassed by it because i'd be like you know we go to these comic cons and he'd be all like i'd be like oh can i they got an exclusive sir let me get over you know and i'd like pull back i'd ask people like okay you're going to get that for your kid yeah could you get one for me too (laughs) yeah no that's that's the one people can understand that i collect comics but i'm sitting here i've got uh, optimus prime and starscream right in front of me I've, you know, got, and, and, I've got Buddy
2: Jesus, Loki, and Bone in front of me right now. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, there and, you go. And K-2SO.
1: They, oh, I perfect, I
0: have Wonder on my desk. Does that count for anything?
1: <laughs> oh, no, that's fantastic. So I, I got to write Wonder Woman for a Rock the Vote comic that we did for DC Comics. And yep. one of my favorite things to do is when I – I had to stop doing it so much, right? So then once I started writing new fictional like, superheroes for mm-hmm. DC and Marvel, then that was I was like, okay – you can't buy all the things you want until you've written that character. Ooh. <laughs> That's a good challenge. Right? So then DC offered me this gig doing the rock the vote GO TV thing, a comic that we did that went all in the DC comics last fall. And I was like, oh, well, I'm about to throw everybody in here. And so it was, it was, was, you know, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Batgirl. It just opened up a whole world for me. So I went and I got that McFarlane Wonder Woman that's so cool. And anyway, yeah, that was. We're going to be good friends, Andrew. I can already tell. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, related. So
2: normally I ask this question around books, movies, and TV shows. But now that you've unabashedly shown off your nerddom for all of us, Mm. which is a feature, not a bug, my friend. I want to reframe the question. What is a comic book that you read that has characters that you relate to?
1: I guess that was part of why I had to do March, because it was so hard for me to find people that I could relate to. But what I was so proud to do is to make it canon in the DC universe that Damian Wayne, Batman's son, is in fact half Turkish. Yeah. And introduced two characters that are essentially Hittite gods who are now looking out for Damian Wayne. And that was, for me in terms of superheroes, the first time I'd ever had a character that I could relate to in that sense. But to dial it back... So does that mean Rachel Ghul and Talia are are Ottoman? Like they're Turks. Turks. They kept yeah. calling him. So when Denny O'Neill first wrote the Razal Ghul storyline, yeah, he called yeah, yeah. him Son of the Demon. Eastern Roman. <laughs> which is a white folks' way of saying Turkish, right? So I latched onto that and God bless my editors. They let me do it. And well, but like what else are they, right? Like it's just the same stigma we've been talking about, right? Like they can look Turkish, right? I even have the gray in my beard now, like Razal Kool. It's it's <laughs> my friends make fun of me they're like what are you like trying to cosplay I'm like dude it's all natural but growing up the characters that I really related to it has something to do with when I came of age in comics was the whole like Banshee Emma Frost version of the X-Men mm-hmm. right that led into Generation X the mm-hmm. comic mm-hmm. and that awesome chromium cover we need to bring back chromium covers but for like really serious comics, right? Like there should be a Chromium cover version of March. Or, I would or love Kent that State
2: or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Variant covers.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's something about knowing that you had a special talent and you were too young to know how to use it. Yeah. They, they, and, and that everybody else thought you were dangerous and everybody else thought you were an outsider that, that really made me feel comfortable in comics. And then the other side of it was always, and this is why Damien meant so much to me. You can check my Instagram on this. Like, I I loved Batman with a deep and abiding passion. My Batmobile collection is prolific. And my first day of kindergarten, I bring my Batman and my Robin, the superpowers version of them, right? Mm Pre-movie. And I have my Batman socks hiked all the way up to my knees. (laughs) Because I want to make sure everybody saw that they were Batman socks. And I'll never forget going into my first day of kindergarten. I had actually had to repeat kindergarten, which I thought was because I was dumb. But my mother later told me it was because of my birthday and Mm -hmm. that she held me back because she wanted me to be the oldest kid in my grade, not the youngest. Mm -hmm. But I remember going in with my Batman socks and I got Batman in one hand and Robin in the other. And I go up to my kindergarten teacher and I say, thank you so much for having me. I've already done kindergarten once. So if you need any help, let me know. And I go and sit down. And my mother used to love to tell that story because the, the. That's very the... Dick
2: Grayson to all the Jason Todds and the Tim Drakes in the room, my friend. <laughs>
1: right. Speaking and then of she mom... made me put away my toys. And I was like, dang it. Oh, oh no. no. These are my emotional support action figures. Oh, and then my mom, just to give me hell, would be like, are you playing with your dolls again? Oh, <laughs> really? no. Such a good Spaceballs reference. <laughs> <That should laughs> figure's <know>. like, yeah.
0: <laughs> so speaking of mom, what's your favorite mom dish?
1: My mother would admit and would not be ashamed for me to say that she was not the finest cook. <laughs> Her favorite joke about us is we grew up 99 cent Whopper poor because the only time we got to eat out was when Whoppers were on sale for 99 cents at Burger King. and that And she hated cooking too. We had this joke right? That my mother was actually a Cajun cook. And people would ask, why? I was like, well, because everything's blackened. And she just had this tendency to burn things. But my favorite thing that my mother would make, and she would make this for my birthday, she would make it at Christmas, and she hated cooking it, but she could make this really good. It was fried okra. I love fried okra. And mama made it better than anybody. You dip it in cornmeal, and then you fry it in oil, and is all popping and hot and you got to put the screen on top of it. But that was the family dish that I always think of and that's what always makes me feel like I'm eating with family.
2: All about some okra. So yeah. and Man, give it to me southern style, give it to me Indian style, okra, 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 or lady fingers as my mom raised in the UK would say. Uh what about your least favorite food? We had a lot of fights over asparagus
1: because I would feed it to the dog, and then the dog's pee would smell funny, and then Mama would know that I'd fed it to the dog. Because the dog would go outside, and you just smell asparagus pee, and then she'd be like, "Dang it, you did it again!" Yeah, asked Mama, I did that. And broccoli, I really didn't like broccoli, still don't. But both of which have grown on me. I just think Mama would just steam it, and we weren't spices were expensive, so it was not a lot of seasoning in the house. But then what happened? Mama moved up here. And she started growing it all herself. Maybe this would have been a better story for the other question, but she started growing her own carrots, her own asparagus, cauliflower, broccoli. Those things tasted better to me than any fruits or vegetables I'd ever had in my whole life. And it was something about mama growing it on her own land with her own hands. Yeah. It just just tasted better and I really loved it.
0: Yeah. It's amazing. Who is someone out there that you'd want to interview on a podcast? Hmm.
1: I really want to talk to this guy, Alfred Hassler. Alfred Hassler was the gentleman who originally had the idea for Martin Luther King and the Montgomery story in 1956. And he shepherded it through, and he did not like comics. I've gotten to know his children because I wrote my graduate thesis Mm -hmm, mm as the first history of it. And his children are fantastic, and they've been wonderful to stay in touch with. But the story they always tell me is they're like, Daddy hated comic books. He thought they were for, they were like not. They, basically they rotted your brain mm-hmm. so the video games of the era right exactly right so so what was that moment? They convinced you, right? Because because he, he was at this moment in time where only at that moment would it have been possible for him to do what he did, because the comic book hearings had so thoroughly decimated the comic book industry. Yeah, seduction of the innocent, all that stuff. Yeah, right. And and uh, the SD's Key fall for committee and and what they did to and also Gaines mouthed off and of yeah. course yeah, yeah, shock yeah. us a comic book publisher was disrespectful to a politician. Oh mm-hmm. my gosh, mm-hmm. why? Like you didn't like comics. Comics had just been essentially denounced in the most public of ways. Yeah. 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 Rotting our youth. Blacklisted. Yeah. Right. Why? What what where where was that lightning bolt moment? That is that is the big question for me, right? Like just like you want to know why I was persistent mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. why I felt like it I, I knew in my heart it would work. I want to know. Why and it it was way less of a risk for me to push that in 2008 than it was for him to push that in 1956. Yeah, that's I'd really love to talk to him. But honestly, the other one I, I I would just love to interview my mother again. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I live with ghosts. Yeah. <laughs> <And> that's really <laughs> what I've
2: become. It's it's funny. This podcast was born out of another project I did a few years ago where I just wanted to interview a bunch of people from my life. And a lot about that, more and more, um seeing too much death in my life and it's like I don't want to have regrets for conversations I never had. So,
1: yeah. Yeah, um, but it's, I I remember being afraid and my mother didn't want to be interviewed on camera. Mhm. Uh, Because I talked to her about it because I was always working on some project. And I was like, why why don't you tell me your story? And Mm -hmm. my mom was like, oh, but I don't look good anymore. Yeah. And then the strangest thing, when my mother died, they send in the priest or the reverend or the minister. I don't even know what he was. Because I was with her. I was, and I'm sitting at the foot of her bed. And the guy comes in and he says, the first thing out of his mouth, it's this deep, deep voice. He goes, your mother was a beautiful woman. And I'm like, what? She's dead. Are you trying to hit on her? Like that's in my head where this is going. And then I thought about it later and I was like, I wish she could have heard that, Mm. that even dead, they thought she was a beautiful woman. And she spent so much of her life believing all the bullshit about beauty standards and everything else. Yeah, yeah that at 70, she still looked better than 90% of the folks out there. People still thought she was beautiful and that I wish she had been able to internalize that while she was alive. That mm-hmm. goes for a lot of women out there too, yeah. I, and men as well. I hope we all realize how beautiful we are in our youth yeah. and and how beautiful we continue to be, that a gray hair or a wrinkle is not some sort of uh, scar Mm-hmm. but it is a sign of a well-lived life.
0: Yes.
2: That dovetails into our final question. And Andrew, what does being a modern minority mean to you?
1: It means I can talk about it finally. Mm. I, I spent so much of my life pretending to be something I wasn't, trying to fit in with a group of people that I didn't fully understand and never felt like I I, I was a part of. and And it's like now there's not a lot of half Turks out there, but there are a few, but there's a lot more people out there with the same feelings I have about who I am, where you don't feel like you're part of one group or the other, that you exist in some middle space that is uncomfortable for people to recognize. And it's like, you look at the census data, right? The jump in other, in terms of the ethnics groups was substantial, more substantial than it's ever been. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is a reckoning that we are going to have to have in our understanding about what it is to simply identify someone's ethnic group mm-hmm. or whether or not they're a minority. That because of the American experiment, that we truly did become a melting pot. But what are the children of those who melted? hmm mm-hmm. Where do they fit? And I think even the people who have two parents of the same ethnicity, we are still particularly children of immigrants. Mm-hmm we are still facing this question in so many different ways because there isn't, there's not role models for us yet. There's not people, we're not talking about this as much as we should be yet. And it's certainly not something that we're introducing or or at least as I grew up, we were not introducing to young people. And so in some ways, I think this modern experience that we have now, what's happening, what's developing in front of us, it's an opportunity for us to understand that we don't need to categorize everybody, that all of these categories and these classifications that we try and put on people in the United States fundamentally are arbitrary, just like the borders that created them, Mm -hmm. right? The borders for so many of these countries that we're all from were created from wars that were written by people who weren't from those areas, and they were created- Political
2: motivations, yeah.
1: Exactly. I hope that eventually we realize that all of us, in some way or another, are a minority, and that what makes America strongest is when we realize that we bring these differences to the table, not to divide, but to express and to strengthen the core of this country. It's our superpower, right? I mean, what other nation on earth has so many different groups of people with so many different traditions and so many different sets of beliefs that we can draw from that we can use as inspiration to As the congressman would say, redeem the soul of America. I think we've got to stop looking at these categories as weaknesses or cause for division and start looking at it as strengths and opportunities for us to embolden our purpose.
2: Well, Andrew... I love all the work that you've been doing, and I I love even more hearing the story and the journey and and the perspective it's given you. And I don't know, I hope we can keep this conversation going. I really appreciate you
1: sharing with us today. Yeah, man, stay in touch. Look, I appreciate what you guys are doing. These are conversations that need to be had.
2: And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform.
0: Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more? or got something to
2: share. Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi, mom at modmypod.com.
0: You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. Now here's
2: a preview of our next
0: episode. What happens when we don't know our ancestors' histories? What happens when we lose connection with our heritage? What happens when we don't have documentation of what people lived through? Suddenly, I felt compelled to write the novel because this was not something I'd seen, right? Partition told three generations and 70 years after it happened. I wanted to ask the question in the present day, what happens when we don't know about our family's past and how does not knowing transcend and shape our own lives
2: that's it for now i've been raman Segel,
0: and i'm still sharon lee tony
2: remember we're all modern minorities out there
0: we'll talk to you soon